Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Just before you listen to today's episode, this is a quick message to remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help support History Hack, which is run entirely by volunteers using our Patreon account. There are links on all of our episodes. Or if a subscription is not your thing, you can also now drop us a line on Kofi, which is just the equivalent of buying us a drink. So if you hear an episode, you like it and you want to chip in just once, then you can do that too. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack, for which I'm quite excited today because I'm going to learn something about my own field that I should know more about because I spend so much time obsessing over French generals and British generals uh, that I don't do enough of this. Zach, who have you gone and found today? Well, there's a certain irony to this one because we do, uh, initially, I was kind of characterised as your chief of staff and this therefore apparently made me Ludendorff and you Hindenburg. But then it's both fat and annoying, right? And slightly fascist in my well, yeah, yeah, slightly yeah. fascist in my case. So I decided I didn't like that through a hissy. <clears throat> and then you made me woolly, which I don't really understand, but apparently it's better and doesn't involve fascist connections. No, but as Robertson and everybody likes you and nobody likes Lloyd George, but we can get into that on another episode. That, yeah, that's a whole other thing. That was like the whole prequel before we started recording. But today we are talking about the original, if you like. So we're talking about Hindenburg. Ludendorff and to an extent about Hitler and we are joined by Alex Clifford. Alex is an expert on Europe in the interwar period. His previous publications include the People's Army in the Spanish Civil Wars, a military history of the Republic and Fighting for Spain, the International Brigades in the Civil War 1936-39. But today we are talking about his new book, Hindenburg, Ludendorff and Hitler, Germany's General's and the rise of the Nazis. Alex, great to see you. How are you doing, my friend? Uh, thank you, and I'm doing well, thanks, and thanks for having me on the show. He's absolutely going to get book sales, isn't he? Because he's got the <laughs> N-word in the title. We have established that if you have any one of Titanic, Nazis, sex, or Tudors in the title, <laughs> everybody runs out and buys your book. It's a money well, spinner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it even has a swastika on the front cover. and they'll make a documentary out of it as well they just can't get enough she says 48 hours before going to film another documentary about hitler Uh, (laughs) because it's just how the world rolls Uh, i'm really interested in this because like i to my shame i get to peace day on 1919 in june and just go i'm done now that's me finished i'm not interested anymore my interwar knowledge is atrocious um so Let's cover the prequel to the events that you really discuss in your book. Um, Explain to everybody what Ludendorff and Hindenburg are up to in World War I and why they're so important. 
Um, well, they are the um, kind of silent dictators of uh, Germany in the First World War. Um, they had kind of, they're both from Prussia, surprisingly enough, rural Prussia, um, uh, but they're kind of slightly different backgrounds. Hindenburg is um, from a very kind of aristocratic noble family, admittedly by the kind of late 19th, early 20th century, fairly impoverished one, as a lot of aristocratic families were by that time. But, you know, he can trace his lineage back to Teutonic Knights in the 14th century, supposedly, anyway. Um, and Ludendorff, on the end, is a bit more, bit more middle class, um, kind of, he was at a cadet school from the age of 12, then got into the military that way. But they'd both been um, career officers um, up to the First World War. Hindenburg had retired a few years before World War One. He was uh, 64, I believe, when the war broke out. And he was recalled at a, a dramatic moment in August 1914 when the Russians had mobilized much earlier than expected and were pushing into uh, German territory in East Prussia. And he was appointed as emergency commander of the 8th Army to see off the Russian threat. And they got in as his uh, chief of staff, um, somebody who was had been a rising star in the general staff, then had interfered and meddled a bit too much in politics, been cast into kind of semi-exile of commanding an infantry regiment. Um, but in the first few days of the war, had won the highest German military honour for supposedly capturing the fortress of Liège single-handedly by knocking on the door with a, with a sword hilt, um, which is Eric Ludendorff. <laughs> Again, maybe there's some exaggeration <laughs> in that story. Um, but they won miraculously the Battle of Tannenberg in uh, August, September 1914 that supposedly saved Germany from Russian invasion um, and instantly therefore became kind of propaganda heroes and used that reputation and also, you know, really milked that reputation um, effectively over the next few years to rise to a position by 1916 where Hindenburg was appointed chief of the general staff um, and Ludendorff was made, it was a title made for him, which is always good. You can kind of interpret that however you like as first quartermaster general, which basically remain, meant he remained Hindenburg's chief of staff doing the, the staff work while Hindenburg was the kind of figurehead um, front man. Um, and then obviously they lost the First World War through a series of pretty um, poor decisions like unrestricted submarine warfare, like the spring offensives in 1918. However, um, Hindenburg had become, during those four years, an absolute national icon. Um, the Kaiser, to some extent, wasn't a great kind of wartime leader for some various reasons. Uh, so, his inability to concentrate on anything <laughs> for more than five minutes and to run away when things got difficult, you mean? Possibly, I might have yeah. been citing that, yeah. Um, <laughs> And also, I think possibly a bit about around his kind of um, physical disability as well. Um, whereas Hindenburg is just like Prussian militarism personified, you know, stern, honorable, dutiful, lovely kind of mythology around coming out of retirement to save his country. So um, everything the Kaiser would want to be if, <laughs> yeah. if, he, if he had two arms, isn't it? I mean that—that's ultimately the problem with Willie. He—he uh, 
he's he's got this disability and he can't be what he thinks he needs to be um and it colors everything always indeed and so hindenburg you know german propaganda makes a massive deal out of him and his personality um and his kind of almost like father of the nation persona um you know, there's, it goes to obscene lengths at times. His face is on everything, um, you know, from ashtrays to harmonicas. Um, his portrait is in millions of German homes. He, they erect wooden statues of him in, in most cities in which people pay money towards the war effort to nail an iron uh, nail into it. I think there's some sort of Teutonic um, kind of myth mythology going on there there's even a hindenburg museum opened um about his life and achievements so while ludendorff is the one really doing the um the proper staff work and, and devising their plans hindenburg is the kind of front man who is the kind of embodiment of the german war effort in the first world war can i ask a really ignorant question ludendorff offensive starts off really well then goes catastrophically badly wrong, mm-hmm. mainly because they kind of push too far too fast, was my understanding of it. Is that on Ludendorff? Is that poor kind of staff work and poor planning? Or are there, you know, can't we, are I mean, there other reasons? Yeah, they don't stick to the plan, do they? If they'd have rolled up like they were supposed to, they might have done it, but they carry on sort of flogging towards Amiens and don't gain anything of strategic value. Yeah, they, there's, there's kind of, I would say there's two um, approaches in terms of where the problems are. Number one is kind of strategic in the idea that going on the offensive in 1918 is probably a bad idea with hindsight because realistically they're not going to defeat Britain and France and America on the battlefield. So it probably would have been best to look at something else. But Hindenburg and Lundorf by that time have, have total power. They can dismiss chancellors and foreign ministers at their will by this point. So no one questions the idea that an all-out offensive marketed as the peace offensive might possibly go wrong if it doesn't succeed. And the second one on the more military uh, kind of level, um, it it doesn't really have the the initial operation, uh, Michael, um, doesn't have a clear objective. It's a diversion. The main offensive is supposed to be in Flanders to seize the Channel Ports, Operation George. Um, But they throw so much at, as Alex was saying, throw so much at the first one, Operation Michael. um, I think they suffer something like 250,000 casualties that they can't follow that up with their drive in Flanders. Mm -hmm. And Operation George has to be scaled down to Operation Georgette. um, And it doesn't again it achieves a nice little breakthrough but it doesn't seize the channel ports yeah but well, more importantly what it doesn't do is end the war before the americans start arriving because once that starts happening you're done if you're germany yeah let's talk about stabbing the back myth or dolchstoss uh, that was an attempt at german sorry german listeners don't hate me um because it's an important element of how you start the book so just explain to our listeners who might not know what the dolchstoss is uh, or was i should say and Perhaps more interestingly, what the roles of Hindenburg and Ludendorff were in its creation and perpetuation? Well, the, um, and yes, you pronounced it absolutely fine, that's like Dolstos Legenda, Dolst, um, Stab in the Back Myth, um, is one of the most 
significant uh, lies, myths, whatever, conspiracy theories in 20th century history. It um, plays a crucial role in Germany's understanding of the First World War. Um, it massively influences um, the political atmosphere of the Weimar Republic and Nazism and indeed the Holocaust um, later on. What it is, um, to put it simply, is the idea that Germany didn't lose the First World War, that it was cheated of victory um, by the, um, first of all, the um, requests for an armistice by the civilian government in October 1918, and then the German Revolution, which broke out at the start, well, very end of October, start of November 1918. And the idea that the German army was undefeated in the field, was occupying enemy territory, and, you know, in some variants of the myth, even on the brink of victory at the gates of Paris, when they were stabbed in the back by, um, as I say, civilian politicians who just want peace, or communist revolutionaries, or, and this has kind of got branches in both, Judaism as a whole that is somehow controlling both communism and um, these kind of weak politicians. And it's kind of central. It becomes, certainly for the German right, uh, it becomes the dominant explanation of what happened in the Great War and how Germany went from appearing to do really well for the first half of 1918 to suddenly um, being defeated. And it's quite a kind of powerful and reassuring myth because for ordinary people, you know, they, they live in, living in Germany, obviously are subjected to censorship, to war propaganda. And if you're relentlessly told that the war is going really well, and of course you're told in the spring and summer that these great advances are being made, then it suddenly doesn't seem to make sense that your government sues for peace in October. And then of course, you know, there's chaos, there's revolution and the precise timeline of events might become muddled in people's brains. And it can appear that the politicians or the revolutionaries sabotaged the German army. Obviously that creates a lot of bitterness, resentment and outright hatred. And is you know, the reason why quite a lot of, um, democratic politicians are, are murdered, for example, in the first few years of the Weimar Republic. They are literally seen as traitors. Um, now, in terms of Hindenburg and Ludendorff, they play a really central role in this myth um, because it is they who gain the most in the short term from the stab in the back myth because, of course, as I've said, they are in supreme command. They not only are the military leaders, but have such power and influence that they can determine German economic foreign policy uh, and quite a lot of domestic uh, policy as well. What happens when they realize they're going to lose the war in September 1918 is they basically tell the government you need to sue for peace before it all collapses. They never mention at this point that it is somehow a betrayal or a conspiracy. They, when they write the letter to the Kaiser, asking for an armistice, they don't mention any political or domestic reasons. It's purely military reasons. 
Nevertheless, on the night, I think, that they send that letter, Ludendorff says to the people in the staff, in the general staff, now, you know, the people who've put us in this situation will get the blame because they also recommend to the Kaiser democratizing reforms so that it will be a, for the first time, a government based on the parties in the Reichstag who will actually have to ask for peace. So it's a clever little piece of, of shifting responsibility. Um, just on a side note, Hindenburg, way back in the spring, had written a letter to his wife that said, I'd quite fancy a peace sometime soon. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Um, I'd quite fancy a peace sometime soon, but if it all goes wrong, it's not my fault anyway. Oh, Which okay. is an amazing <laughs> thing to say from the Chief of the General Staff. Um, it's like Joffre after the Battle of the Frontiers, and he's like, well, I'm really trying to figure out what went wrong here. I mean, obviously, it wasn't me. <laughs> And, uh, you know, um, it, so clearly the mindset is already there that, you know, this isn't to bl- our, our fault, um, which is, to be fair, a very human thing. People very rarely at the first instance see themselves as guilty, especially for an extremely disastrous thing like losing a world war. But where the rub really comes is after the war, in the first kind of year or so after the war because obviously there's a big search for who's to blame. Ludendorff is in a, at the very least, if you take the account of his wife, a very fragile mental state. Um, He flees the country. He lives a few months in exile in Sweden. He apparently, when he was sacked, sat at his desk for days on end, just mumbling, staring into the distance. Um, So I, I would be pretty confident saying he had something like a nervous breakdown. But from that, he writes, um, and he's finished it by February 1919, he writes a 270,000-word memoir um, of the First World War. And, of course, it isn't his fault. Um, He blames, primarily at this stage, he's blaming politicians. He's blaming, you know, your your Bethman Holwegs, your your, um, foreign ministers, chancellors who've come and gone for their weakness in, you know, not controlling the home front, in not prosecuting the war ruthlessly enough. And then comes um, an official parliamentary inquiry into the defeat, um, which is held in the autumn of 1919. And the democratic government thinks this is a good opportunity to kind of put this question to rest, to shift uh, responsibility to who it should actually be on the military and the kind of old Kaiser uh, Reich and kind of clear our name a bit, but it actually ends up doing the exact opposite because Ludendorff is called as a witness and he refuses to attend unless Hindenburg can, um, you know, um, give evidence alongside him. They hadn't really wanted to call Hindenburg because he was still a great hero. He had escaped all responsibility and blame for the war effort collapsing. Um, He had resigned the day before Versailles was signed, um, even though he'd told the government sign um, when the government had said, look, if you think we can still resist, we will. Um, But he'd resigned in order to make it look like he disapproved of the treaty. And when they attend, um, it is a, it's a gigantic event. It, I don't think it can be overemphasized how important this um, and how explosive this, this testimony is at the inquiry. There's huge crowds mob them on their way in. Um, people 
it obviously tends to be a right-wing nationalist crowd, people shouting, you know, don't go, don't answer to this kind of Jew government. Um, but they, they go because they've got a very specific purpose in mind. Um, the panel asks questions, but Hindenburg just kind of contemptuously stares at them and refuses to answer. And he takes out a prepared statement, which has been written by Ludendorff, and he reads it. Um, and the rub is that we aren't to blame, that the country was stabbed in the back. He quotes supposedly a British general. That's another story that is, um, was, again, a myth in itself. But he kind of says that even the British believe that the German army was stabbed in the back by its home front. Um, and it's patently clear that the good core of the, the German army has no you know, shame or guilt attached to this defeat. It is politicians, it is revolutionaries. And the reason this testimony is so, so important, I would argue, is that Hindenburg is, is in this position where he's like royalty, he is respected, he's loved. His word carries enormous weight. And his word, his message to the German people is, you were betrayed, that you were let down and that a victory was stolen from you. I think the power of that as well is the fact that Hindenburg and Lundorf are the country's most well-known generals. They are the military experts. And it would be akin to you know, a medical expert saying that, uh, let's say coronavirus was a conspiracy and that isn't real, if the chief medical officer said that in a press conference to the nation. I think that, you know, this is the leading military authority in the country saying we weren't defeated militarily. So people believe it, people buy it, people absolutely um, sign in, sign up to it, and it gets accepted. And Hindenburg goes on to write his own memoirs that are deliberately designed to be populist and, and readable. And he says, again, it's not our fault. We aren't to blame. We've been stabbed in the back. It was the politicians. It was the revolutionaries. It's been a, it's a great crime. And Germany's been robbed of her victory. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Well, <laughs> it's mad, isn't it? I just The battle of the memoirs is quite something else in every single country afterwards and people trying to shape the narrative of what happened and everything. But we need to move on for the purposes of your story um, to say that Ludendorff becomes a fascist. So at what point does this start happening? Because he ends up gravitating towards and tries to become a big deal um, in the precursor to the Nazi party, doesn't he? Which I'm not even remotely going to try and pronounce. <laughs> I just embarrass myself. Uh, yes. Um, Ludendorff already had, um, I think it's safe to say, far-right views. Um, he was involved in the Pan-German League before the First World War, which was a um, far-right organisation. He had helped set up the Fatherland Party during the First World War to basically um, parrot 
supreme command um, ideas in the political sphere, which again was a kind of definitely at the very least nationalist organization, if not far right. And he immediately becomes involved once he returns to Germany in the spring of 1919 in various plots um, to overthrow the Republic that had been created after the Kaiser's abdication. And he is one of the leading lights behind um, the first kind of coup attempt in 1920, the Cat Putsch, which is a, is a um, kind of farcical failure. He then kind of flees again into semi-exile in Bavaria. And Bavaria, because Germany is a federal country with very strong regional governments, he can basically escape any responsibility and attentions um, for his activities by going to Bavaria because it's a, a state with a very right-wing government that's pretty sympathetic to him and other extremists um, who kind of use Bavaria and Munich as a kind of, uh, it's, it's kind of almost a greenhouse for far-right um, politics in the early years of the Weimar Republic, not least um, the emerging Nazi party. And... In 1921, Ludendorff boldly announces that he is going to investigate the Jewish question, and he's going to research widely about it. And he, of course, reads all the kind of um, texts that exist around conspiracy theories, um, like the uh, Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And he writes another book um, about also about the First World War, really, a lot of his books basically were, but also moving a bit more in terms of his future vision. And he's clearly moving into a, a kind of far-right conspiratorial worldview that is going to, you know, evolve and evolve. But it's at this time that he comes into contact um, with Adolf Hitler because he's moving in these far-right circles. He is... Probably, um, again, because of his wartime reputation, the single leading figure on the extreme right of German politics at this time. So the young Hitler coming to see him, you know, he was impressed by Hitler, as, as many people were, um, by his kind of forthright views and his, his very kind of um, decisive speaking. And equally, Hitler was probably... Um, very pleased to make Ludendorff's acquaintance. Ludendorff was someone who, who got him connections, um, got him, definitely we know, got him a lot of money that he could channel um, to the Nazi party. And these two kind of therefore had a kind of symbiotic relationship, I would say. It very much suited Hitler in the first few years of the Nazi party to hitch his bandwagon to Ludendorff. Equally, Ludendorff... Um, kind of needed a political um, movement if he wanted to achieve his aspirations. And his aspirations, um, if you read his writings at this time, are very clear. And he thinks he could have won the First World War if he'd been in basically total leadership, if he'd been the dictator. Um, and he's probably aspiring at this time as Ludendorff to become some sort of dictator, or at the very least, head of the army with dictatorial power. Um, and Hitler's Nazi movement seems to be something that he can equally help use to get him where he wants to be. And Hitler at this time called himself, or at least in public, insisted and called himself the drummer, as in he was someone who would drum up public support 
win over the masses, but not necessarily be a leader um, or, or the leader. Um, so their relationship kind of worked quite nicely in that Ludendorff is the figurehead. Ludendorff is the man who can lead. Ludendorff is the man who can bring the Nazi party the kind of connections it wouldn't have being led by an Austrian lance corporal. But Hitler can provide the kind of mass movement. Hitler can provide the propaganda that will together build a kind of far-right movement. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let's talk about the Munich Putsch then, because Ludendorff is involved in this. Talk us through what his role is within it briefly. And then, you know, how does he end up escaping punishment? Because everybody knows it's not, or I think I've got this right. It's not Ludendorff who goes to prison, is it? It's obviously very famously Hitler who then goes on to write Mein Kampf. Yes, absolutely right, Zach. Um, One of the things that really frustrates me actually about um, these two is how often they kind of don't get proper responsibility for what they actually did. Um, so a lot of things when you read it, or particularly, I think documentaries are particularly bad for this. The Munich Putsch um, or the Beer Hall Putsch, Ludendorff is kind of this peripheral person who just like comes along. Oh, and General Ludendorff from the First World War was there. It was a bit more than that. You know, he'd been for several years in close contact with the Nazi party over the course of 1923. Um, he, along with Hitler, had kind of forged a united far-right militia in Bavaria called the Kampfbund of which Ludendorff was the military leader and Hitler was the political leader. So they were really kind of partners in crime. And, you know, Ludendorff wasn't just along for the ride or someone who who happened to join up at the last minute. He was, you know, there from the get-go. And the putsch is inconceivable without Ludendorff. There's no way that Adolf Hitler in 1923 would think he could win despite whatever, you know, his, his, his... Um, illusions about himself or delusions. Um, There's no way that the Nazis in 1923 thought they could win the power of the whole country um, because they're pretty much a local movement in Bavaria. It's the fact you have Ludendorff at the head and he says that the German army will support him if if an uprising is led by him and that nationalists from around the country will, will, will come to his banner. You know, there's no way that they would have made a grab for power if they didn't have Ludendorff at the front. Um, so on the actual Beer Hall Putsch, what he actually does is um, Hitler famously proclaims the Putsch in a Beer Hall. He then is picked up from his, his villa on the outskirts of Munich and brought down. 
he's wearing a, a tweed suit and felt hat because he thinks his uniform might make him look like he's kind of participating in a putsch. This way he can claim that he was just happening to visit a beer hall for a drink and there was a putsch going on when I arrived. So I, I naturally <laughs> had to take part. Um, that was his defence in court. Um, and it Sounds like a Boris Johnson defence, doesn't it, really? <laughs> it was a work party. Yes, and, and the fact the Bavarian government was being held at gunpoint, he claimed you know, he thought they were on board. You know, they, they, were, they were with it. <laughs> Um, so he was acting on behalf of the Bavarian government. But his, his role is actually really crucial in the events, those farcical kind of 12, 14 hours. He is the one that persuades the Bavarian government uh, leaders to very briefly say that they're going to take part because they're not persuaded by Hitler, but Ludendorff has the prestige to say, come on now, let's go for this. Um, he then, Ludendorff, decides to let the Bavarian military and political leadership go while Hitler is off trying to firefight somewhere else um, because they've shaken his hand and they've given their word as German officers that they're on board with the putsch, which Ludendorff thinks is enough, um, which I always think is ironic considering how many lies he told to this point. But anyway, um, the, he then decides that everyone should decamp to the war ministry where they spend the whole night sitting waiting for the Bavarian military to turn up, which they're not going to do because they're not supporting the putsch. Um, and then... When they're back in the beer hall in the morning, uh, the subsequent morning, um, this would be 9th of November, 1923, he then declares, we're going to march. We're going to march through the city centre. We are going to bring the populace to our side. And the, the army would never shoot on a column led by General Ludendorff. They march into the city centre and they get fired on. <laughs> um, and supposedly... He marches on through the gunfire and marches into the square and then gets quietly arrested. I don't buy that for a minute um, because many people who were there believed for a while he was dead. I think he threw himself to the ground. Um, his, um, his valet standing next to him was shot several times. So I, I don't think there's any chance that Ludendorff would not throw himself to the ground. So, you know, he's a military trained man. Um, but he's arrested. Avoiding bullets is kind of basic training, isn't it? <laughs> yes, <laughs> not walking into them. Um, and when he's arrested, um, he behaves very petulantly. He says, I will never wear the uniform of a, general, a German general again because I've been betrayed by these German generals. A few months later, he does wear the uniform for the trial. But um, he also, if I can, um, if you'll allow me a little anecdote, he, he says that he needs the toilet when he's been under arrest, but that he refuses to go to the toilet unless he's escorted because he's a prisoner. Um, the guards don't want to escort General Ludendorff to the toilet because it's General Ludendorff. Uh, and there's a standoff for about 20 minutes. Uh, eventually, however, nature wins out and Ludendorff goes to the toilet by himself. Um, but he, he behaves very petulantly. Um, he does the same at the trial. He, he's an absolute nuisance uh, in the trial. Uh, he goes off on crazy rants. He isn't a great public speaker, unlike Hitler, who really makes a bit of a name for himself at the trial. And realising that he's about to get into some serious bother for what he's done, um, he changes his testimony about halfway through. And at the cat putsch, he claimed when he joined the march into Berlin, he was out on a morning walk, saw some soldiers, went over to see, um, and just happened to 
walk with them into the government uh, offices and, and seize power. Equally, as I've said, he claims he was just visiting a beer hall and uh, accidentally got kind of wrapped up in this putsch. And his defense is more or less that he, you know, he didn't realize that a putsch was going on. Um, it's ludicrous, it's untrue. Um, and yet part of it, I think, has seeped through into that kind of popular history documentaries that I've mentioned that, oh, he isn't important. But it means that he's found not guilty, unlike Hitler. So as seems to happen throughout his life, he avoids responsibility. It's brilliant. I just, <laughs> it's the whole defence thing. I, I didn't know what was going on. I'm, I'm a trained general, uh, but there were guns being waved around. And it, frankly, I was just, I was just in shock and got wrapped up in the events. Uh, it's nonsense. It sounds very Bojo-like. He considers, both him and Hindenburg, consider running for the 1925 presidential election. What is it that sees Hindenburg emerge as the victor and not Ludendorff? Um, well, let's go with Ludendorff first. I think that yeah. leads me more naturally from where we're talking about. Ludendorff, while Hitler was in prison, makes a very concerted play to become leader of the Nazi party. Um, in a kind of leadership triumvirate with the imprisoned Hitler and with a North German nationalist. And he wants to build a united far-right movement across the whole country, of which he will be the kind of figurehead. Um, he's not a very good politician, is Ludendorff, and this basically doesn't succeed. However, what Ludendorff does have is a very substantial following in the Nazi party. So when Hitler comes out of prison, and refounds the Nazi party in February 1925, he's got a problem on his hands because he doesn't really think Ludendorff um, is any use anymore, more of a hindrance than a help. But his party, many of the um, rank and file, very much support Ludendorff. It was very normal to hear Heil Hitler alongside Heil Ludendorff at that time. It was They were kind of dual leaders. So what to do? Well... The day after Hitler refounded the Nazi party, the president of Germany dies, Friedrich Ebert of appendicitis. And um, therefore, there's going to be a presidential election. And Hitler decides that Ludendorff, he should persuade Ludendorff to run as the Nazi candidate in the election. And he doesn't do it um, because he thinks Ludendorff can win, because he knows Ludendorff has no chance of winning. He does it to discredit Ludendorff and also to drive a wedge between the Nazi party and the rest of the German right, because he wants to separate out the Nazi party, make it his personal loyal following. Um, whereas previously the Nazi party usually worked in collaboration with other parts of the right. And um, Ludendorff it totally buys this. Um, after his meeting with Hitler, he tells his wife, you know, oh, well, you know, the Prussians, the East Prussians will vote for me because I saved them in 1914. Um, and Hitler you know, very selflessly has said he doesn't have a following across the country, and I do. Um, and, um, yeah, it goes disastrously wrong. Um, Ludendorff doesn't really campaign because he doesn't know how. He isn't a politician. And he gets 1% um, of the vote, which is obviously quite embarrassing in the first round. So that's the end of any hopes Ludendorff has of being a serious political leader. Let's talk about Hindenburg as president, because as we say, Hindenburg comes out as the victor. This is, you know, in, well, initially at least, it's the 
the golden years of the Weimar Republic that he presides over. So what's he like as a president? And also how actively involved is he in trying to stabilise the country when the Depression hits in 1929? Yeah, um, Hindenburg wins in 1925. Um because he has an untarnished reputation from the First World War. The stab in the back myth is a big part of that. He, had go, he was going to run for president in 1920, um, but the election then was cancelled because of the cap which I mentioned earlier. So in 1925, his kind of untarnished hero reputation, all the things I was saying at the start about kind of this father of the nation, he's seen as like a bipartisan person who's who's bound duty and honor and the embodiment of kind of patriotism. And he doesn't even need to campaign because he's the most probably well-known German in the country. And he, you know, the first few years of his presidency, you're right, is, is known as the uh, golden years, the Weimar Republic. Um, how much that's to do with him is, is probably not so much. Um, he was kind of quite hands-off in his leadership style in the first really kind of four or five years, which had always been the case, you know, as, a, as an army officer, he'd been very kind of hands-off. He's more the kind of man manager rather than a details man. Um, but on the, you would say that, you know, he was a very popular figurehead for the country and he brought a sense of kind of restoring the greatness of, of the past. And, you know, he was genuinely loved um, for his 80th birthday in 1927. Um, there was massive celebrations. There was um, Hindenburg films were made, documentaries and dramas, uh, books, um, a gigantic parade in Berlin where 40,000 school children performed. Um, in one city, they had a fireworks display where the fireworks, when they exploded, made an outline of his face because he has a very distinctive face. Um, another city, there was a human pyramid, a gigantic human pyramid made with the portrait of Hindenburg at the very top. Um, so it, it, you could argue that he was a kind of unifying figure. Then obviously comes the Great Depression. Um, and the, the situation is already bad even before the Wall Street crash, actually. The German economy is beginning to slow down in 1929 anyway. And for a few years, Hindenburg's inner circle, which tends to be army officers, funnily enough, um, had been pushing towards the idea that actually, if you interpret the constitution a certain way, the president could play a much more active role. He has the power to hire and fire chancellors, but he also has the power to rule by decree um, in an emergency, but the constitution never defined what an emergency is. So whenever the president feels it necessary, he could pass a decree. Um, and because the Weimar Republic had been so unstable and there'd been so many parts, so much parliamentary deadlock, there was actually a, a broader kind of consensus that really the president would have to step up, play a more active role, and that the idea of a presidential government, a government not based on the parliament, but based on the president's authority, would perhaps be a way out of, of Germany's kind of political and economic um, turmoil. So from 1930 onwards, you had what was called the Hindenburg Cabinet, uh, led by uh, Chancellor Heinrich Brüning, which was basically a right-wing um, kind of conservative government. Um, a lot of people in it, 
um, had the Iron Cross, which kind of seemed to help in order to get to be a minister. Um, having the Iron Cross was definitely um, an advantage. I mean, Bruning himself was a machine gun officer in the First World War. I think multiple Iron Crosses. And Hindenburg enjoyed being around military men. Um, the Bruning government, though, uh, didn't succeed in defeating the Depression uh, in kind of 1930-31-32. In fairness, no government in the world did. Um, but Germany was particularly hard hit. Unemployment, um, you know, was through the roof. Um, his approach of um, cutting back on, on public spending and everything except the military, which his budget increased through the Great Depression, um, really obviously led to massive suffering, material hardship, fall in standard of living, and growing resentment. So amidst uh, this background, um, you then get um, the growth of the Nazi party to the position where it is the leading um, party in the country. So how actively involved is he in trying to stabilise the country during the depression that follows? Hindenburg has to become really active in politics in a way he hadn't um, in previous um, years. Obviously, that, that ruled by decree. Mm. Um, he is also really pushing for people he wants to have certain roles. And it's also um, he who, because he has the power to hire and fire, and because the parliamentary system is deadlocked, it's the government gets to a situation where it needs to enjoy the confidence of Hindenburg rather than of the parliament or the, or the country. And that's where Bruning himself comes unstuck in, in spring of 1932, in that um, Hindenburg basically loses faith with him. He was annoyed at the fact that he'd had to take two rounds of the 1932 presidential election to win rather than one against the measly Lance Corporal Hitler. Uh, the idea that Field Marshal Hindenburg needed two rounds to defeat Hitler was, was deeply upsetting to him. Um, and Bruning had done things like ban the SA brown shirts for a few months, which Hitler, uh, which Hindenburg really didn't like because it got Hindenburg a lot of flack in the right-wing press. And he was very sensitive to criticism from kind of nationalist right circles because he saw himself as the ultimate embodiment of the nationalist right. Um, so he had to play a, a kind of really active role in, in Germany's botched attempt to deal with the depression. So Hitler famously becomes chancellor in January 1933. There's a lot of talk about whether or not Hitler is sort of slightly fearful of Hindenburg and the extent to which Hitler's worst excesses were held in check by Hindenburg. But you talk about Hindenburg being a willing collaborator. Why is that? There's a few reasons. First of all, from 1930 onwards, when this experiment in a new form of government is taking place, Hindenburg wants to create a united right-wing government. He wants to bring in all elements of the right. And that's the real pressure he's putting on politically uh, on Bruning for a few years is bring the Nazis into the government, bring the DNVP, the German Nationalist Party, into the government. He wants to create the kind of unity 
um, that that kind of spirit of 1914 that Germans were obsessed with uh, of, of national unity that excluded the left. He had no interest in working with the with the political left, but he wanted to bring in all forces of the of the political right. So, although he's sometimes portrayed as the kind of last barrier to Hitler. Um, he had wanted the Nazis involved in his government for some time. And he just had, he, he didn't particularly want Hitler as his chancellor because he was a right-wing aristocrat who thought Hitler was a, a nobody, a jumped up corporal. And he would have much preferred someone like an, a fellow aristocrat like, like Franz von Papen as his chancellor. But he, he didn't have any objection to the Nazis being part of the governing coalition. And eventually that's what happens in January 33. Um, because Hitler puts his foot down and demands the chancellorship or nothing. And eventually the, the Hindenburg government is eventually kind of forced to, well, if we want to work with the Nazis, we need to have the Nazi Hitler as chancellor. So eventually they give in to that demand. And there's this idea that Hindenburg was somehow senile or didn't know what he was doing. Um, but people have been saying that since 1925. People have been saying, oh, he's being used by or anyone you don't like, you just say, oh, Hindenburg's being used by them. He, he doesn't really, but this is his long-term objective, create a kind of united right-wing government. And, and that's what he gets in January 33. And there is actually, by the way, no evidence at all that he, he was any, in any way senile or mentally ill. Um, he was certainly physically frail. Um, you know, he was 86. Um, but once Hitler comes to power, he kind of sits back and relaxes like, well, I've done my job. I've, um, you know, delivered the country a strong right-wing government. And he raises very, very few objections to anything the Nazis do. The extent of his objections are that he once tells Hitler, kind of ticks Hitler off for a speech in which he criticised President Ebert, Hindenburg's predecessor, and says, you're a bit too harsh there. And then in April 33, when they passed the law, the civil service laws that ban Jews, communists, and others from holding civil service posts. Hindenburg asks for an exemption for Jewish war veterans. Um, but he defends in, in a letter, he says, that, you know, the Nazis have every right to go after the Jews because the Jews have been really nasty to the Nazis for years. Um, so he has no kind of objection to concentration camps, to banning the communists, to shutting down trade unions, um, you know, that all happens. And he signs the decrees that make it happen. He happily sees the enabling act that allows Hitler to become a dictator passed. You know, he, he does raise objections about one or two things, but they're very trivial. So if he really, you know, he had the power to sack Hitler if he wanted. If he really felt strongly about persecution of the Jews, then why didn't he do anything? You know, he, he's very satisfied. He's happy to take part in, Nazi propaganda, he, the day of Potsdam in March 33, he basically confers his prestige and legitimacy to Hitler. And in his, his will that he writes in early 34, um, his kind of political testament, if you like, he says to Hitler, it's a private as well, this is, you know, not to be, not for publication. He says, at some point, it'd be quite nice to restore the monarchy, but I leave that to you. You are my designated heir. Um, so again, there, there's pretty much no evidence for this view that he really fights back against the Nazis. What happens to Ludendorff in the end? Well, um, Ludendorff is a slightly uh, more quixotic um, story. 
after he kind of breaks with the Nazis in the mid twenties, um, he goes down a rabbit hole. He remarries um, a woman called uh, Matilda Chemnitz, who's a psychologist, um, feminist, and radical nationalist. Um, and she believes that Christianity is a Jewish conspiracy to destroy Germany because, of course, Jesus was a Jew, and it's a it's clearly some sort of attempt to destroy the German way of life, the pagan um, faith. And Lundorf buys this, he adapts it into his own conspiratorial worldview. And by the early 30s, he is adopted her very strange pagan type religion. He is writing about a conspiracy of Judah and Rome, i.e. the Catholic Church that, that controls everything and, and is trying to destroy Germany. Um, nevertheless, actually, the last few years of his life, he's reconciled with Hitler um, and the regime permits um, pretty much the only dissent or open criticism of the Nazi regime is, is permitted from the Ludendorff Press, um, which is his newspaper and publications, which their criticism is, is basically that they're not doing enough to punish the Jews. Um, Hitler is too mild on, on Jews. He's too mild on the Catholic Church. We need to go further and faster. Um, and he dies um, a few years after Lund uh, Hindenburg in 1937, ironically um, spending his last days in a Catholic-run church uh, hospital. But <laughs> there we are. Oh, I love it. Love the irony of that. Look, uh, more power to you for taking on um, this topic because I run screaming from it because it's uh, complicated and weird. Uh, your book, tell us again what it's called. It's called Hindenburg, Ludendorff and Hitler, Germany's Generals and the Rise of the Nazis. Oh, fabulous. Well done. Uh, it will be on the History Hack bookstore. Alex, thank you so much for joining us and giving us just a brief taste of what's in this. I, I love the anecdotal stuff. I, I just I love the hypocrisy as well. It's just mind blowing. Oh, absolutely. And thanks so much for having me on and, and letting me talk about two absolute rotters for an hour. I know. The absolute rotters is about the nicest thing you could say about them. Thank you so much. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.